So the Midwest Monsters Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Grizzly Abner, and I am joined by Professor Wagstaff, Venomous Vinny. Good to be with you again, friends, as we bring you another edition of our Documentary Mash. This is where we uh, take uh, documentaries from the horror genre or horror-adjacent genre and... Uh, just do it like a mash style, like our regular Monster Mash. And so, my name is Grizzly Abner, and I'm pretty sure I chose Nightmares in Red, White, and Blue. <laughs> Professor Wagstaff here. I picked Midnight Movies from the Margin to the Mainstream. Venom's Denny here. I picked Turn Blue, The Short Life of Goulardi, and it just dawned on me that two of the three of us picked a title with the word blue in it. I'm blue, da ba da da Okay. <laughs> It's going to land with a certain audience. Uh, I believe we have chosen to begin with Vinny's pick. I don't even have the year. Turn blue. Sorry, guys. 2009. Thanks. So, if you don't know who Goulardi (laughs) is, first of all, had you guys seen this before? Uh, No. (laughs) I've never seen it, and what's strange is I've watched... American Scary twice, and I don't remember him being featured heavily in American Scary. He's certainly mentioned. Okay. Goulardi is the... Oof. I'd say your top three that are generally regarded as like the kings and queen of, of horror hosting in its infancy is, first of all, Vampira and Zachary. Okay. But Goulardi, next tier, him. Goulardi's the next, the next one. So he is like in that uh, graduating class. Yeah, Zachary and Vampira come in in the fifties. Uh-huh. Goulardi comes in in the sixties. Okay. And you have the two you're mentioning are much larger markets with Los Angeles and, and New York. Yes, in terms of their reach. So it's yes. like it's it's notable to point out that he's making a splash in Cleveland. Yes. So the the documentary is about. If you're not familiar with who Goulardi is, uh, Ernie Anderson is the guy who played a uh, horror host in the 60s in Cleveland called Goulardi. Uh, he hosted the original, I believe it was the original Shock Theater package. Um, he was only around, what was it, three, four years? And was, I mean... As big as a local celebrity can be, sure. In the '60s, that was Ernie Anderson as Goulardi. Yeah, there was an interesting dynamic with him that really tapped into the moment, and I don't think it was it was manufactured. I think he was doing his thing. But uh, as you mentioned, Shock Theater was a huge deal uh, for for kids, especially uh, getting to see that package unveiled each week. First time with- that package, uh, and and it was fifty. 50- 52 films released by Universal from their their yes. uh, horror collection. First time these movies had been seen on television. Uh, and they were sold as the shock package to local TV markets. And almost every TV market in those days bought the package and assigned a horror host for every... Almost every major city had their own horror host. You've listened in the past... I'm huge on that. I, I I love that. I I am enamored with the uh, history and the idea of local television that's virtually non-existent anymore. You'll find pockets of it here and there, but it was a time when those local hosts were every bit as big of a celebrity as the people in network television. Oh, Nation, yeah. undoubtedly, without question, and they leaned into their regional uh, landmarks, things that really kind of had this uh, element of pride to the area. Uh, but yeah, he really 
he tapped into not only the boom that came with the shock package, which, you know, my dad was one of those kids. He was obsessed. He started having a journal where he kept notes. He'd like, there's a funny story where uh, he basically begged my grandmother to stay up and get notes on the black cat for him. And she, she messed up and uh, <laughs> it took him a long time to get all the info on the black cat. But uh, now in the age of DVDs and Blu-rays, we can watch whenever we want. But at the time it was, you know, a big deal with each week, what came out, but then you kind of tap in and we'll get more into his personality, mm-hmm. especially the persona um, that was on TV, but you're also getting into rock and roll and, and that kind of rebellious attitude of which he specifically incorporated in, into his kind of persona. And so it was a, I would imagine, especially in that area of the country, a very intoxicating personality to tune into each week for young people. And television was only 16 years old. Yeah, that was one of my initial takeaways from the beginning. I was like, whoa. Yeah. People have only been watching TV for 16 years. Yes, and he and and Ernie the Goulardi character was the first one to ever get on TV and say, "This movie sucks." Yeah. <laughs> like, if, if you can watch anything else, go do it. Uh, I don't know, and, and I think another reason the reason why this is even made is because of the impact Goulardi has had on culture in Cleveland specifically, where it has spawned at minimum, I'll just say two horror hosts that were fairly successful on their own, uh, The Ghoul and Son of Ghoul. Son of Ghoul's still on TV in that area to this day. Uh, And are they still running Goulardi Fest annually in in Cleveland, or is that stopped now? But it was very long running. And Big Chuck and Little John all came from that line. Just Cleveland, you could do a whole documentary on Cleveland and horror hosting by itself, but but I just find Goulardi to be very interesting, and I and the reason I pick it, it's obviously something that I find very interesting, but I find Ernie's Anderson in particular to be interesting enough that people who aren't so into that would find it interesting as well. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I really, don't think so. I'm really excited that you like it. <laughs> <laughs> I, if anyone was going to poo-poo this, I knew who it was going to be because there ain't no handguns or home invasions. <laughs> no, I thought it was neat. Uh, what's really most interesting to me about it, and again, as you say, like his legendary status, is that what's uh, there's just not much Goulardi out there. No. you. Like, can, I think everything exists on YouTube and it's not much. Yeah, and so I think that's what interested me in the subject the most. My biggest takeaway is that because when, when, like, when I looked it up I was like, who the fuck is Goulardi? Because <laughs> That's I'm, actually going to be the name of this episode. Because <laughs> I've been around you enough that yeah. that you've I'm not big on horror hosts, but being around you, I've I've absorbed some of that through osmosis, and at least had uh, enough working knowledge to be dangerous, but not really informed on the subject. And like I said, I watched American Scary at least a few times, mm-hmm. and it, it just when I just I was like, who is Gallardi? Now you said Vampira and uh, Zachary, boom! I know those right, right away, and I could I could I could describe an illustration of them and their set to you in a minute. Right. But yeah, I just, I had no knowledge of Gilardi, uh that I had any that I could pull off of. And even watching this, I was like, oh, well, that's why I don't know much about him because there's just not enough out there about him. And so really it's going to travel through folklore and lasting uh, legacy. Um, so, I mean, yeah, that interested me enough. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> I was just like, the whole time, I'm I'm more baffled that I have no idea who this guy well, is. Well, and Goulardi's not really my bag. Like he's yeah. not one of the horror hosts that I really hold up. And no, I wouldn't want to say in high esteem because that's that's not the right. It's just not my bag. I, I'm not huge into it. Um, but I find his time and place, yes, and all of the strange intersections of his career, yes, with other people and. Where he ends up, and just all of that is very interesting to me. Yes. So I wouldn't pick, I wouldn't pick many documentaries 
about a horror host for us to, to talk about, but this is just intersects in such weird places that I just thought this is this is the one. Because that's where I was at, at one point in watching it. I was like, man, if this is where Vinny's at on our documentary picks, he must be really, the well must be going dry. <laughs> I typically, I get around uh, Halloween season, <clears throat> my horror, it's always present, but I really get into the horror host thing around Halloween time, and I try to find stuff I haven't seen before. And uh, we had went to Cinema Wasteland, me and the professor, and Hot Toddy in uh, early April of this year, and Son of Ghoul was there. And I thought, so that kind of got the Count Gordeval kind of got the horror host interest going again, and so I just specifically started looking up Goularty stuff just because there's a Goularty merch all over that that mm-hmm. convention, um, and I happen they're to still run, very proud. Yeah, and I happened to run into this documentary, and I watched it. And then we decided to do a documentary. I was like, you know what? I just watched that. Well, let's let's do that one again. I and I watched it a second time. Yeah. Because um, he at one point Ernie Anderson is working at the station, uh, gets his buddy hired on Tom Conway, who would later change his name to Tim Conway of Carol Burnett fame. Like, yeah, that I had that in my notes. That surprised me. Yeah, that's an, and and then. <laughs> To kind of gloss over things from from the superstardom of Gulardi for those few years, Ernie Anderson, true to form, gets bored with it, moves out to California and becomes the voice of what, what is it? Uh, CBS, whoever aired because he was the voice of the, on the Love Boat. That was Ernie Anderson. Yeah, for all yeah. those years, that was Ernie Anderson doing doing, doing that voiceover work, and then uh, his son, kind of famous, <laughs> Wes Anderson. No. Yes. No. Who? who? Who's what? wrong here? P.T. Anderson. What? Mm-hmm. P.T. Anderson. Oh, then I'm wrong. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. To me, Andersons. Sorry, I watched your documentary. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's one of my uh, favorite things with this is because I knew for years that Paul Thomas Anderson's yes, dad Paul did Tom, voice, that he did voiceover work oh, Jesus. in the industry. Oh. Had no idea that it that these were the same people. Did you learn it watching this? Yes. I mean, like... Oh, this, you learned it watching this yes, documentary? Yes, Paul Thomas Anderson, for context, is one of my absolute all-time oh, favorite yeah. directors wow. ever. Yeah. I like, imagine how surprised Wes Anderson would be to yeah. find out. <laughs> it's his daddy, too. <laughs> yeah, because, well, what's funny, too, is, like, early on, I was kind of getting context for the documentary. Like, I do, I'll take notes, especially with Toddy uh, stepping aside. I try and make sure I've got at least some basic information down. So I, I look at these things initially... I don't read into the plots because I don't want any spoilers, but I get the basic info. So when I, I brought this up, I was like, Hard Eight, Bo- Dirk Diggler, like, what the hell? Huh? So I looked, I was like, oh my God, he, <laughs> it all clicked, and then the documentary spelled it out. So, Holy shit, Blue I had no mind. idea. Nice. Yeah, so that was an incredible takeaway. And so this. let this also be proof that I paid attention while watching because this was <laughs> this was revealed at the end of the documentary. Yes. yes. And so I'm sitting there watching and I'm like I had to do like a double take. Like I had to rewind. I'm like, did I hear that correctly? This is P.T. Anderson's daddy? I heard that it was Wes Anderson's apparently. <laughs> uh, I also like that uh, in the that last interview with Ernie when they're talking to him about Goulardi and the staying power he's like, I don't get it. I mean, it wasn't that great. Yeah. And if you don't believe me, go back and watch it. Yeah. <laughs> like his flippant attitude oh, yeah. to having been the king of Cleveland. Yeah. Like it's just and, and again the that's legacy. That's why he that succeeded left, though. He was just rebellious. And the last time he appeared as Goulardi was on uh was Joe, Joe Bob, Bob Briggs yeah. show. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I like that he would uh <laughs> He took it. He, he took it so minimally serious that he would be hanging out at the bar until it's time to run over to the studio. Yeah, and they, my favorite's when he gets there and says, uh, "They said he'd be putting on that shitty fake goatee and mustache." And then he sits down and goes, well, "The music ran short this week, folks. The intro music because he was late getting to his chair. <laughs> Tried to put glasses on top of his glasses he was already wearing. Like he did it. not give a flying shit. Yeah, and and like." He became an icon. <laughs> yeah, because how? I mean, Ernie is what in his forties. By the time he gets this Goulardi role, and at this point has been fired from every job he's ever had because of his no other way to describe it, his punk rock attitude. Yeah, yeah. Where he got fired from one studio for riding his motorcycle into the station, and then <laughs> at the height of Goulardi, 
rides his motorcycle into the station of the place he works. Like, learns nothing. Well, I early in the, the people documentary. People loved it that time. Yeah. Well, they got a memo saying, don't ride those anymore. Ride <laughs> yeah. motorcycles early anymore. in the documentary, I had, I had thought it. And then they actually mention it in there, like the parallels with Howard Stern. Oh, And yeah. kind of not respecting ah. leadership. Um, that's what I was catching early on with this, because I had no idea that... Because I knew kind of his persona, but I didn't realize that he'd ruffled feathers along the way mm. while doing it. And so that was an interesting kind of element to it. I was like, oh, he was actually pissing the heavies off. Yeah, so that he had pissed off. He had gotten fired from every job he ever had. Yeah. And then lands this one, and then knew he was too big to fire... I would just do shit to fuck with them. Yeah, but it's it's interesting too. I, I I'm drawing a blank right now. What's the documentary you picked that covered a ton of war hosts? That was uh, American Scary. American, American Scary. Scary. So this also has that. And what I love is the the absolutely effortless enthusiasm you get from people talking about their region. And mm-hmm. so I love getting that because to me this is. This like our generation's version of this is looking at rental stores. Yeah. Like when I see pictures yeah. pop up on social media with like Friday night at the video store, oh man, I miss that. I really do. <clears throat> like well, all sincerity, yeah. like it hurts my heart to think like I got so much out of that event that doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing when you listen to people talk about their horror hosts and kind of that Friday night world that they longed for. And so I, I really enjoy elements of that. And then um just kind of how you you build upon this guy's career that doesn't end there, that we end up out there. And I had no idea that Conway came from that market because I recognize him as a star of, of his era. Had no idea that the ties were there and then that this was Paul Thomas Anderson's father. And so you can look at kind of his IMDb to see where he got into narration work, even in, in film outside of television. He's even popping up and stuff like... Uh, Animaniacs, Stay Tuned. I mean, like, he was all over the place. And to give context for for listeners that they don't know about P.T. Anderson, like, Boogie Nights, There Will Be Blood, Magnolia, Magnolia, and uh, recently Licorice Pizza, a lot of which these movies really play on Los Angeles and the industry, and that's because he was being raised there Mm -hmm. after our our main guy here has moved out there. And so... The kind of tying that all together was a really neat punctuation on this documentary for me. I truly, I, my mind was blown with this. I love it. I love <laughs> That's it. great. Yeah. So yeah, it was a fine pick, and I had to tease you for a minute. But like, I know that this isn't going to hit for everybody. It was, it's it's a niche market. Yeah, a hundred percent. But like I say, I think this one is the one that is the most accessible for a larger audience because of the paths that he crosses in it. It's a very and that's the other thing they even mention it in it is it, during that time it you could identify where somebody was from by their horror host or by their kitty show host because every major market had them TV in its infancy and I I I guess in reality it I get nostalgic for an era that I barely tasted because uh, there I still had uh, Cowboy Bob's Corral when I was a kid. Uh, a little bit later, uh, TV 23 in Indianapolis was a, a brand new station when I was a kid. And they had a guy called Professor Fun that would show cartoons. But, uh, and of course, we I had Sammy Terry. I don't know where I was going with all this. I'm meandering now. Uh, well, but but, it, but it, it's just that now, I guess, really, you, have, you can have a studio in your own fucking house and make things if you want to. Sure. And the internet's this giant thing that you can put your content on but i am very nostalgic for that era when tv was local it was very experimental it was very in-house everybody wore a bunch of different hats like it was just so much more creative back then was the quality up to snuff of of things that were on network probably not but in there and the Goulardi at one point they said had a 27 uh, rating in share rating and the Tonight Show had 7 <laughs> yeah I mean this local TV guy was beating the shit out of Johnny Carson which also surprised me side note that they mentioned that Cleveland being up in the top markets at that time I was like oh holy shit yeah. I guess that yeah, yeah. and uh, Ohio's an interesting thing by itself uh 
as even with horror hosts, there are more horror hosts per capita out of Ohio than than I think any other state. Yeah, it's, it's very three, it's it's three different states almost. Yeah, it's wild. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, um, and I think we gave the uh, basic feel of this thing, and, and but didn't really spoil it for anybody. I think you can still go watch oh, this yeah. now, and, yeah. and we've not ruined anything. for We've you. covered the spirit of it. That's what's yeah. important. And yeah. um, who who did your dad watch? Was it Terry? Sammy Terry was what would have been on in the area. Um, Dad always said that reception, as far as he lived north, was a little bit bad for him to watch it. Um, And there was also another guy, I want to say it was on Channel 8 around here, by the name of Selwyn, who also was a host. My dad watched out of Cincinnati, and the name's escaping me at the moment. But Uh, Dr. Creep was around in probably after your dad's era. There was the Cool Ghoul. Cool Ghoul, that's it. Yeah, yeah it was right there. That's who my dad watched all these movies with. There is a documentary on the Cool Ghoul on YouTube as well that you should show your dad. Oh, cool. Uh, it's very cool. short, but I would not subject anybody else to that. Fair enough. <laughs> He's a very eccentric character, uh, the Cool Ghoul was. Gotcha. Yeah, it's it's an interesting topic, and I think that for anybody who likes uh, older horror movies, it's really charming to kind of mm-hmm. tap into that world. I honestly would start with the documentary we covered first, yeah. and then if you're itching for more, this is a nice regional yeah. offering. But it's I, I can't stress enough that uh, how exciting that time would have been and how it birthed a whole generation uh, of fans because... These movies were not the proven commodity that they are now. We right. all know these things as staples of the genre. But when these movies were being pumped on the TV back then, they hadn't existed in the zeitgeist for 30 years, some of them. I mean, like, you know, my grandmother went to see Dracula when it came out. Well, I mean, that, that it just goes away for decades. And then you've got a, your, your kid wanting to watch it on TV... You know, all these years later, and then you especially, mix in these charming hosts that, that, especially kids, it's almost like this uh, complete escapism, like Clubhouse every week. You just mm-hmm. get to explore a new movie. And kids would have been so exciting. Kids had heard lore of these movies from parents who had seen them. Right. right. You know, so finally they get exposed to it, and finally they get to see it. They do the host also to, because uh, these movies were still scary to people back then. Mm-hmm. Sure. So that was kind of to alleviate a little bit of that, but also commercials weren't what commercials were are now either. Right. Where they would do a lot of the advertising themselves on there. Yeah. So, yeah. Turn Blue, The Short Life of Goulardi. It's on YouTube, free. Check it out if it interests you. Especially if you're a Paul Thomas Anderson fan. <laughs> yeah. Holy shit. If yeah. you're a Wes Anderson fan, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I believe our next pick is The Professors. Uh, yes, Midnight Movies from the Margin to the Mainstream, uh, directed by Stuart Samuels, came out in 2005. It has a, quite the impressive list of uh, talking heads, which I won't list off because we're trying to keep this episode at a reasonable length. Uh, just real quick before we jump in, you guys seen this before? Nope. Yes. Vinny had seen it. Okay. Um, so basically the whole gist of this um, and I like their approach to it is is kind of tackling the idea of a mid, the midnight movie that really birthed in the 70s um, with kind of some localized efforts at theaters where things caught on. Uh, the opening quote, just to kind of lay it out here, is between 1970 and 1977, six low-budget films shown at midnight transformed the way we make and watch movies. What's interesting about this is the approach that they take in terms of um, the types of movies that we cover which are Rocky Horror Picture Show, Night of the Living Dead, The Harder They Come, Pink Flamingos, Eraserhead, and El Topo. Um, really kind of cover a whole host of, of uh, types yeah. oh, of yeah. cinema from that era. Yeah. Now, I am, uh, it's no secret, a mark for 70s movies. I, I just love that era. So uh, this is a documentary I had not seen before when I picked it. I had been wanting to watch it for a very long time, and so that's why I threw it out there. I thought, okay, Night of the Living Dead, there's our direct tie into horror, and it'll give us a chance to kind of look at some other things as well. Um, I'm interested, before we kind of run through the approach to the documentary and what they cover, of these movies, had you guys seen the majority of these that they're talking about? I've only seen half. Gotcha. I would say half is probably about about the ratio I've seen as well. I think that's going to be kind of the, the common uh, situation for most Maybe people. Maybe less, too, to be honest man. with you. Uh, 
because again they're very different. Oh yeah, um, and I, I think unless you're really dedicated to that era of film, you're probably not going to have seen all of these. I think I will now. Yeah, I'll make it a point to see them all. But yeah, good to hear because I was kind of the same way. There's a few yeah. I, I hadn't watched where I was like, okay, I want to see this now. Um, it opens with kind of the overview of midnight movies, um, which without dragging it out, it, it, really the main point of these are shock and humor. Uh, there's a lot more to that. Uh, which they kind of start to detail with each entry in this documentary. Uh, but that's kind of the thing that um, you're leaning into with these movies. The first one that really uh, kind of set the table for this and that the documentary opens with is El Topo, uh, Alexandra Jodorowsky's uh, film that began screening at midnight at the Elgin Theater uh, in Chelsea, Manhattan, uh, which would later go on to become the Joyce Theater. And it, um, they basically were looking for kind of a, an avenue with this kind of one-of-a-kind movie back then um, and thought, well, why don't we just start playing it at midnight mm-hmm. see if we can we can get a little traction with it. <clears throat> and it didn't take long. I mean, it was almost instant yeah. uh, with this success that caught on. Uh, word of mouth uh, really kicked around the neighborhood, and it started becoming a thing that people sought out almost like a, a ritual experience, um, a rite of passage in terms of the interest. And so um, the movie itself is this violent, surreal Western. Um, it also has a, a lot of kind of interesting elements to it. Uh, it pulls from Freaks mm-hmm. uh, is one thing that they reference in there too. So, I mean, that's without going beat for beat through these movies, it, it's it's a very unique situation. And so uh, they also highlight in there uh, that John Lennon and Yoko Ono uh, even attended one of these just to kind of put in context what kind of attention this was grabbing was with, with around Manhattan there. Um, have we have we seen this one? I have not seen El Topo. You know what's funny? I've never seen El Topo, but I own his second film, Holy Mountain. Which is weirder. Like the definition of bonkers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, so this is the one that I will be seeing the soonest. Yeah. I've never seen it before, and after watching this documentary, I was like, I need to correct this. Now, I need to watch you've this. seen Shogun Assassin, haven't you? Yes. Or Lone Wolf and Cub? Yeah. When it shows that the kid, before he starts his journey, he buries his toy in his mother's photo. Mm-hmm. I mean, that directly reminded me of Shogun's Assassin when he tells Cub, you can pick the sword or the ball, kid. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> it was one of those moments where they're showing clips like you're referencing here where I'm like, oh, oh, shit. Like, you can tell that this is rooted in so many things that people have made, both of that era and since then. And you kind of go on to see that and think about it with some of these other movies. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, we'll we'll have to all check back on that one. See (laughs) that one out. I've seen Freaks a thousand times, though. Yes. And, well, it's funny, too, because I kept noticing uh, people with different... Uh, variations to their body mm-hmm. that that were within within the film, missing limbs, mm-hmm. other other situations, and I was like, huh. Hmm. And then they actually addressed it and, and mentioned the movie Freaks, and I was like, okay, we're we're getting deeper here. And so something that, and I'll just throw this out here now that I appreciate this about um, this documentary is this is a movie lovers documentary. Yeah, there there's a lot of tying things together. Without it being three hours long and exhausting. It's all killer, no filler. Yep. yep. Um, they jump straight into Night of the Living Dead, which we don't need to spend a ton of time on because we've discussed this movie uh, ad nauseum on here. But Never seen that one. <laughs> um, I, th- I think really one of the important things to point out with this, uh, and you know, alongside all of these films, is they were more independent efforts. Yeah. And so that's why they kind of needed the later... Uh, cult reaction and following that came but with this it was shot uh, very realistic um, and, and almost this kind of approach that, that paralleled uh, news broadcasts yeah. and so it's a really fun movie to throw on late at night mm-hmm. and kind of escape into its approach uh, gain traction through this uh, midnight approach uh, both in D.C. and then Manhattan and then uh, as we've discussed on the show the public domain fiasco yeah exploded this one everywhere. They screwed up with the title cards, then anybody could show it. And so it really became a staple, uh, not only in theaters, but television, DVD releases later. I yep. mean, this has always been kind of one of the go-tos for late-night spooky movies. Yep. Um, Every horror host 
out there has done Night of the Living Dead. Well, yeah, this is like grade A for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're yes. getting one of the greatest American horror films for free. Yes. Yeah. I mean, yes. it's it's a bizarre... It's a crazy tale. ...bath that went with that. Uh, kind of in between, uh, this is really the only time in there where we get something that isn't one of the main movies we're covering. They, they briefly address a uh, theater in Boston that screened Reefer Madness mm-hmm. for the high volumes of college students in the area. Uh, but it kind of showcases um, stoner culture and uh, some of the things that, that, you know, just quite frankly are fun to see with a group of friends yeah. late at night. Uh, but then we jump into John Waters, which is just, he he's in many ways the heart of this documentary. Yeah. Uh, right there, smack dab in the center. Um, we, we trace his early beginnings with multiple maniacs um, and then into Pink Flamingos, which is the main reason he's in this documentary it's the showcase movie um he was big on obviously the shock value of films uh counterculture and um early on was popular with the gay community and then also uh grew into a presence in the stoner community and it's really fun to listen to him talk about pushing buttons and and kind of his anarchy uh, way of making films and that he doesn't really try and sugarcoat that he had no idea what he was doing yeah. early on. I always find it ironic and it makes me grin for somebody who is that way who's like stick it to the man all this but is telling you all this in a suit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He oh man he's just one of a kind. And his pencil thin mustache. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've never seen Pink Flamingos by the way. I have not either but I probably will. It's a good time. I've always yeah. planned on watching it. Just, It's just never like streaming right on there. Yeah, there's nothing at your fingertips. That's for well, sure. and, and none of us have ever, the three of us, have never been big on kind of button pushing. Right. But with him, it's a little different. There is a finesse to his grotesqueness um, that the more you understand it, the more appealing those movies it's more playful. Yeah. yeah. And so I'm also glad that they kind of get out of the way the famous scene with the dog shit. Of course. Um, which is always the go-to that people think of with the movie. And you kind of get that out of the way, and I think that'll help for viewership in the long run. Yeah. I think somebody that watches this will go back and watch Pink Flamingos and get more out of it because they're not sitting there uh, thinking about the infamous scene and, yeah. and what's going to happen there. Um, so, yes, that is one that... Uh, it's definitely, I, I think that more so even than the first two that we mentioned, I think that this one starts to, and they don't cover this in the documentary, but I think it's where we start to get into a bigger scale in terms of where it's starting to hit more and more midnight screenings, and this is starting to hit more and more of the country. Yeah. I think that the first two specifically are more uh, localized to a particular theater, whereas I think Pink Flamingos really starts to branch out a little bit. Yeah. Um, the next one, and I wish, honestly, that they would have spent a little bit more time with this one, because it fascinated me, is The Harder They Come. Uh, and that has got Jimmy Cliff, who is playing Ivan, a desperate reggae singer who turns to crime. And um, I, I think what they're really kind of selling here uh, is that the music is what made this yeah. kind of take off as a midnight movie. Have we seen this one? No, I have not. This is the other one I'm excited to watch. Okay. I- I'll watch this within the week now. Um, that's uh, the songs that they're describing. They're talking about how you know viewers are walking out of the theater just singing these songs, but then you've also got mixed in this insane violence that's going with it, and it's it really looks like a product of '70s cinema. Yeah. And quite frankly, it, you know, kind of like uh, learning Paul Thomas Anderson's dad. Uh, on the previous documentary, that was the moment of like, how have I not seen this? For all of the, the stuff that I've watched that is, that's similar to The Harder They Come, I, I can't believe that that one wasn't on my radar. So I'm, I'm guessing that'll be the big uh, takeaway uh, from that one. My biggest takeaway from that one is that Perry Hensel, the director, <laughs> looked like Saddam Hussein, a white version of Saddam Hussein, when they discovered him, uh, when the Iraq War started. <laughs> with that up out of the ground. <laughs> I just thought, hole. I was like, where did Bob Shea go and what happened? Why has he come back looking so crazy? <laughs> so, yeah, that, that was my funny take. Um, the next one they jump into, Rocky Horror, which has arguably sustained the longest legacy. Yeah. For this topic, 
Um, we covered its uh, unbearable sequel Oof. on the podcast, but we've never covered Rocky Horror. Uh, they really do a nice job of laying out its production history, uh, starting off in the stage in the UK and New York, and then its kind of uh, journey with gaining traction into being made into a film and signing on with Fox. Um, I, I find in particular it very fun and interesting where they kind of break down and explain the development of props Mm -hmm. and the chanting and the audience interaction that fans developed um, along with cosplaying and how big that this grew. And it reminds me of of the quote from towards the beginning of the film where he says, the audience creates the cult, yeah, not the filmmaker. Um, I'm guessing... If I had to guess, I'm willing to bet that you've never been to a shadow cast of this. I have not. I might have to fix that. I don't know, man. I always would because I used to work with girls at the movie theater that went all the time, and they talked about how if you were new, they announced it. Oh. And I'm, I'm. That's why you just don't tell nobody, cuz. But yeah. I, look, you, I'm not a poker player. You can smell it a mile away. <laughs> My nervous ass will be in the back. Oh, promise me, I lied the first time I went. <laughs> So, yeah, I, I wouldn't be opposed to checking it out, though. But I did find, uh, I knew of it, but it was fun to kind of have them spell out how that evolved um, with what's become something we're used to I remember my mom watching this. She had it on VHS and coming in the room and standing there as a kid and be like, what are you watching? <laughs> and just totally not understanding what in the hell was going on. And that... Stuck with me for most of my life. I never went back to it. And then uh, 10 plus years ago, in Muncie, they started having a shadow cast and showing the movie in the month of September. And uh, I was part of the opening act for that for several years. And being there with an audience that are there in costume, a vast majority of them really... Uh, yelling the stuff out. It is a very, it's unlike any other experience that I have ever had. It's the only way to watch it. I would kind of like to at some point because I'll be honest, when I finally watched the movie, I was like, what? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Why is everybody going into it? Seeing it shadow cast is the only way to watch it. Well, there's fun tie ins uh, with the perks of being a wallflower and kind of some of the friends that this guy makes are involved in the local group that does that. And that. Kind of interested me there, so I'm sure it would be fun. But yeah, funny story, me being me, early on I heard that they uh, embarrassed the hell out of Yeah, the virgins. And I I was just like, cool, not going. So (laughs) yeah, it does sound like it would be a good time. Matter of fact, I think I pulled Hot Toddy up on stage one time for his birthday. I think he did. At one of those, and I believe he was dressed as Meatloaf's character. He was. He was. (laughs) Two quick things I want to say just about Rocky. Uh, One... I didn't know that the guy who plays Riff Raff was the, uh, the the writer. Yeah. I had no idea. And two, uh, there's an interesting thing now, especially in horror groups, about people who are anti-Rocky Horror and pro-Rocky Horror. And some people argue that it was a manufactured midnight movie and that it, didn't, it wasn't organically a midnight movie. It was like made to be this weird thing that then, you know, they showed at midnight and Yeah, I, I I don't think a studio would have done that on purpose. No. I think a studio thought they were gonna make money, it shit the bed for general audiences, made its way to midnight and had a second life. Well I would make the argument that it was a it was a midnight movie on the stage. I mean yeah. this already yeah. had some traction and that's why it got made into a movie. Yeah. And this thing is too fucking weird. Well to that's be my next point. Yeah, my next point is that when you watch this documentary, it doesn't give you that vibe at all. No, no. Uh, we just we just know some folks <laughs> who uh, <laughs> would make that argument. <laughs> so anyway, all right. Uh, and then just the the last movie they cover oh. uh, is Eraserhead. Have we seen this one? I have seen it. Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and David Lynch directed this one, um, and. It really it doesn't dive too much into the plot points like the rest of the movies, which is fine because um, I, I think the main takeaway for this one and its place in the midnight movie like pantheon is that it's surreal. Yeah, and I mean it is the vision of it is just so singular that you know it could it could be I don't think in terms of this list of movies I would I would list this as now I haven't seen a couple of these but right off the bat and I'm a David Lynch fan mm-hmm. this looks like the least fun. Uh, to go to Have from this it? list, yes, okay, yes, yeah. And I'm saying it looks like because I haven't seen two of the other movies on this list, yeah. but 
this doesn't have the same. I would like. We're not going to go have a lot of fun watching it. I would like to George Lucas this movie and go back and edit it to make something that's more palatable for Grizz. And I'm going to have Bigfoot (laughs) commit commit a home invasion in it. (laughs) (laughs) Then you're on board. Do, Um, Do you love this movie? I don't love it. No, I, I like you. Always heard people talk about it. Yeah, and like it. It was just. It was almost like I don't. I wouldn't say it's a face is a death, but like you just always heard people talk about it, and there was a certain tone to it. Like you knew it was going to be something fucked up. Yeah, to watch it. Sure. And I. I don't know. It's been probably a decade since the first time that I saw it, and I remember sitting down, and it being nothing like what I had concocted in my brain that I was sitting down to watch uh, and that baby looking thing (laughs) that baby looking thing (laughs) hashtag Uh, it was so fucking weird I just the whole movie was so fucking weird that I think even when it was over I just kind of sat there like sure the fuck did I just watch like and I'll say this it left me thinking about it for days after I watched Which it. Which he's very good at. Yes. Whether you you like or dislike a movie, it'll stick with you if, if David Lynch directed it. Yeah. But with this one, I think context matters. This is a fascinating early film for a director. The oh, vision yeah. of it. Um, I've never seen anything like it. Like, like it, right. I've never seen anything put together like that. Before. And any chance I get to listen to him talk about art or film is, I think, always a nice bonus to a documentary. So I love seeing him pop up and they're talking about it um, kind of based on Philadelphia. And I actually uh, was just there last year and had beers called Eraserhead in the neighborhood mm. uh, from the brewery that that's set up there that kind of celebrates him in that area. Nice. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's it's a very alienating industrial yeah. movie. Um but again, this one this one's not going to be as easy a watch as some of this stuff, especially. This one is personally very interesting to me, but at the same time, within the context of a midnight movie, I have a hard time imagining this being a blast. Yeah, I, I can't theater. imagine uh, yeah. whooping it up in a theater right. watching Cra- Crowds of people leaving the bars to go watch Eraserhead. <laughs> Y'all <Right>. ready? <laughs> but at the same time, you think about what people had seen. Like, we've got a whole career of, of Lynch that's established now. Sure. Whereas that might have been way more thrilling in yeah. terms yeah. of something different. Um, but I think there's a reason it's also last yeah. <laughs> in the documentary. Um, and then just, I want to point out real quick before we got any other thoughts we want to throw out, is just the talking heads is insane. Oh this. yeah. Oh yeah. Um, pretty much everybody involved with making these films is participating. Um, you know, you've got John Waters, uh, David Lynch, like the directors are in there, but you also get guys like uh, Ebert is in there, Bob Shea, um, talking about his early on participation and trying to get some traction to compete uh, with a midnight movie screening. And um, I, I think that's one of the neatest things about this is that this isn't just fan sourced. This right. is this is going big time and getting the people uh, who are involved in making these films talking about them too. Would you say the production was a little bit better than direct to video? Yes, <laughs> just a little bit. Oh man! Ah, oh, goddamn it! I'd forgotten about that. Thing. Uh, I know. Interviews in the middle of a convention hall. No, yeah. no one's mic'd. I'm proud of myself for not having taken too long with that because those are some interesting movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a lot of fun. I'd re- I'd recommend that for oh, anybody. Yeah, definitely Good. watch that doc- yeah. documentary. Like I said, it's the second time I've seen it. Awesome. All right. Any movie doc that makes you want to watch more movies is a good yeah. one. Well, let's continue that theme. I agree. With a little film called Nightwares. Nightwares. <laughs> I just threw my beer all over him. <laughs> Nightwares. Sing it like Toby Keith. <laughs> oh, brought to you courtesy of Nightmares in Red, White, and Blue. <laughs> so. <laughs> that was everything I wanted it to be. <laughs> so, Nightmares in Red, White, and Blue, the evolution of the American horror film. You're like Mel Tillis. I got you to sing it. You could do it. <laughs> Came out in 2009. And this one also is another talking head of Palooza. Yeah. Yes. Um, so, it, right as in the subline of the title there, this film is about the evolution of the American horror film and what's going on in America 
uh, throughout history and how that affects the horror films that we are making. Um, this was my second time watching it. Oh, I should probably throw out, this was uh, directed by Andrew Monument and written by Joseph Madry. And I believe uh, he may have written the book, too. Yeah. So, this is my second viewing, maybe third, um, but this is one I own and really enjoy. Had you guys seen this one before? Same. This was um, when I first got turned on to conventions back around like 2011. I I immediately wanted uh, more of I don't I don't want to say academic, but I wanted to jump more into this kind of world. And so I can specifically remember watching this and the slasher documentary. Is it Gone to Pieces? Yes, I can remember watching really those. good one. Yeah, both back-to-back right after my first convention and just kind of sponging it up. Yeah. Um, so this was probably my third viewing because I, I own the DVD of it. Vinny? That's a good one. This is my third or fourth viewing. Okay, okay. Well, so veterans coming to it. Yep. A lot of fun that Lance Henriksen is the narrator. And just it's, watch your toes. I'm going to drop a few names here. But Larry Cohen, Joe Dante, John Carpenter, Mick Garris, Darren Lynn Bowsman, George Romero, Brian Yuzna, Roger Corman, uh, Tony Timpone, just to name a few people you may have heard of yeah. are the talking heads throughout this. And again, that's what makes it. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, you people have tried to make this documentary a hundred times. Like we've got, you know, American horror films through history. Sure. But to have these guys talking about it, it's the real deal. Um, so we start, you know, there's a lot of great points. We start talking about Lon Chaney and how Lon Chaney appears as like the everyday man. And to early audiences, that's going to be scary, right? But then it starts to evolve from this idea of the monster being out there to really with Lon Chaney and a lot of his characters that really the monster is inside of each of us. Um, but there was a thing at the time that, based on the film code, that said the monsters must be destroyed by the end of the movie, which I think is a really neat thing to point out. Professor, would you elaborate on that at all? Oh yes, yeah, it's, it's uh, there had to be comeuppance. Um, there had to be an end result of. I mean, it's like saying you know the bad guy can't win. Yeah, and so there had to be this kind of uh, end result with every film, and then. Re- ridiculous ways to bring them back in the beginning uh let's have you know which is like even later on you get throwbacks to this with like jason lives we got lightning striking down into the grave and so uh there was this interesting play out with these films where you had to kill them and so there'd be plenty of times where it it didn't need to happen that's what i love about pre-code movies yes yeah uh, especially pre-code, which Warner Brothers didn't do a lot of horror, but that kind of we don't need a happy ending yeah. existed back then, and so it's really fun to go back and watch movies from that era where it's like, oh shit, there's not a happy ending here. Yeah. Um, the and one of the few one of the few things I took uh, disagreement with on this documentary was the comparison to Lon Chaney and the the uh, kind of every man and the outside and the depression, which when he was making those movies, those were the country was thriving. Um, yeah. it's, it's a, they're a little off on that mark. I think not, not to say they're wrong because there is an intersection there, but he, he literally died in the early thirties when things mm. were getting horrendous for yeah. people. So, um, but th- there's something to it. I yeah. think that, I think that we just spend way more meticulous time as we get closer to current times yeah. uh, with, with what we're comparing tidy in the story. But yeah, it is an interesting point that you you mentioned though yeah Vinny, do you have anything to add on the old monster movies and needing to kill them uh no nothing more than you covered just that th- that's why you get into those deaths and then having to come up with a way every Silly time resurrection to be able to but bring man, them back it's cool having lon Chaney dig frankenstein out of the ice yeah <laughs> yeah so we move from the Depression era to now post-war, and we're introducing RKO and Val Luton, and now there's a lot of darkness in film, and that darkness allows us to project our own fears into what's out there that we can't see. They they actually um, cover one of my favorite sequences in all of horror film history in The Leopard Man. And the girl going home on the bus. Oh. And the way that they screw oh. with viewers yeah. in that is just, I mean, it's just top shelf. Yeah. And, I mean, they cover cat people, and uh, 
I, I'm glad that they 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 cover this in there because I think that uh, Val Luton is very important uh, in terms of horror history, and it's also kind of a blind spot for this podcast. We haven't really touched much on that. I know. So it was fun to kind of scratch that itch a little bit in this documentary. But yeah. that's such a great sequence. I've listened to uh, William Friedkin mm-hmm. specifically talk about that uh, in various yeah. mediums as well in The Leopard Man. Well, then we get to Vinny's favorite era, the Atomic Era, where we get all the giant critters and aliens. I do love Atomic Age cinema. He just loves saying them. <laughs> them! <laughs> so again, the Atomic Era comes along and we're just we're worried about nuclear war, we're, Roswell, New Mexico has happened, we, don't, we, we just don't have a firm grasp on technology anymore because now technology is advancing at a rate it's only going to continue to accelerate. And we're under a constant threat of nuclear war. Yeah. And I want to clarify, too, this is where I buy into the documentary. The, like, it's fine, we need to cover those eras, but I don't think that we're directly playing off of current events as much as we are trying to take literary properties mm-hmm. and, and make money off of scary yes, movies. Whereas when we hit the atomic age, we are playing on what is going through people's minds. Yeah. This is where the documentary really starts to, I think, take shape. And Yes, and, and we're, we're starting to really use the genre to disguise real social issues that we can talk about more readily and easily, a little bit under, under the radar, uh, which is, I have always said, sci-fi and horror yeah. are at their best when they're doing those type of things. It's also when we start to throw communism into the mix Yes, in this atomic era. Very much an us-versus-them feel in these types of movies and that, that existential threat of the other. Yeah. Then there's a little bit of a turning point in horror cinema where a film by the name of, is it Pafizko? Uh, how do you uh, psycho? That's how you, how you pronounce it. <laughs> I was I instantly was filled with dread. I was like, "What do I not remember?" Right? Now? <laughs> what the hell is he talking about? Oh, a little film called Psycho comes out and literally changes everything. There, I remember a quote. I, I can't remember who said it, but they said that with movies you can break everything down to before or after Psycho. Yeah, and there's some truth to there's it. There's a lot of truth to that. And so after Psycho, you've got Hitchcock and you've got H.G. Wells, and they're, I mean, they're just changing the way that a lot of people watch stories. Uh, specifically Hitchcock, he's pushing the envelope. He put his career on the line with Psycho. He invested a lot of his own money in a topic um, and in material that was potentially going to be too much. I misread my notes. Not H.G. Wells, Herschel Gordon Lewis. Uh, I was gonna, I was gonna softly lay that out. Well, I'm gonna correct you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, H.G. Wells would have been back in the I, atomic era. I don't feel so bad for Wes Anderson now. Yeah. Um, but but with Psycho, he really he he laid it all out. And to be perfectly honest, he never bounced back. There were some successful movies, but you if you look at what Hitchcock did in the 1950s leading up to that, it's arguably the greatest stretch a director's ever had. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was king of the mountain. And then he puts this movie out, and the studios turn their back on him. Now, he, he still made a string of movies through the 60s. They're not the same. Yeah. The Birds has some really interesting uh, elements, especially for horror, that they even show, like the guy's eyes pecked out. Mm-hmm. It was a good movie. Um, and he's got a few other decent ones, but he put it all out there for Psycho. But Psycho changed everything. It really did. Um, and with, with Herschel Gordon Lewis, it's interesting because... When you go back and watch those movies, and then you you pit them against what was out at the same time, it really is jaw dropping. Yeah, oh, I mean, yeah. like he was just asking to get in legal trouble. Yeah, like it's that envelope pushing because you go back and watch it now, and you're like, oh yeah, Gore Romero did that. Yeah, you know, but it's... when you look at its peers, it's and they show some clips in there with yeah. entrails. It's it's pretty gnarly. <laughs> and if you've watched many of them, they're not real plot driven either. No. No, <laughs> he's not much of a storyteller. No, there. I mean, it's it's truly just anarchy. He's just trying to make uh, some movies that make money. Yeah, through through notoriety. Yeah. 
Uh, we roll into Vietnam and the counterculture and the effect that that has on filmmaking and people's fears, and that brings us back to Night of the Living Dead. It's like all roads lead back to Night of the Living Dead when you talk about the evolution of film. But, you know, even Romero brought up in the previous documentary, we talked about people were pissed off, man. Like, they, they thought that there's going to be this bright, shiny, happy future, and it just didn't happen, and they'd been lied to and deceived by... This is, you know, this is the beginning of where we start to understand that our institutions aren't really serving us as well as they should be. Um, and it just keeps getting worse from there. Well, they even, right, yeah, no, and they even <laughs> make a point in that movie in the 60s to get part of that with uh, news footage in D.C. They got Romero walking around guerrilla style oh, yeah. out there, you know, right there in the middle of, of Washington, D.C., showing leadership failing. Yeah. Um, and so... And I love, too, that he will not take the easy path and never did uh, for glory in casting diversity. Yeah. That he he always goes out of his way to say, no, Dwayne was the best. Yeah. And um, I think that with, with context, that movie holds many other interesting elements of importance, but I love listening to him talk about it. Oh, yeah. Do you like it when he's doing sound effects like Michael Winslow from Police Academy in this <laughs> documentary? <laughs> Oh, what, is that when they're? Oh, yeah, when they're talking about the thing, which always cracks me up about all the doors slamming. Because I always forget about that, and then they mention, I'm like, oh yeah, and he's doing all the sound all the effects noise. for it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so post Vietnam War, we lean into narcissism, and a lot of the films have a lot more sex and violence. Uh, but what's interesting is there's a balance because there are other popular films at the time that have less sex and violence. So. You know, we, we get things like Last House on the Left, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, these things that really ramp up some of that type of stuff. But then, uh, on the other hand, we get The Exorcist and we get The Omen. And so these are like top picks of the genre in a lot of different ways, but in this, existing in the same era of telling very different stories. Yeah, it's an interesting um, kind of marriage of current events and what's permissible with filmmaking uh, because you get the code being lifted, which I know we've mentioned even on this podcast numerous times, but you get that in 67 and things start to loosen. They really take shape in the seventies. And once you get a um, kind of this m- kind of larger success for pornography, mm-hmm. it also starts to soften what's permissible in mainstream film yeah and so you really kind of elevate some of the shock value that's kind of considered normal now some of that shit even 40 years later is still oh my god yeah you know and i think that's part of it is because there was this kind of authentic approach to it that has aged well as opposed to just trying to make some money um but it is an interesting kind of comparison of those two Mm -hmm. um where what well, almost what we view as excessive really isn't when you watch it, and then vice versa. Right, right. A lot of it's implied and in your head. Yeah. Yeah. And one I want to mention before we move on is Death Dream. I, I love that they mentioned that in there. Bob Clark, who did Black Christmas, uh, Porky's Christmas Story, yeah. he, he did this uh, movie Death Dream, which they cover in there, which is about this couple's son coming back from Vietnam, and he's actually dead. Um, and it's... It's a, it's a tough movie. It's good, yeah. Um, but it's also been completely forgotten. Yeah. For as celebrated mm-hmm. as he is as a director, um, that one's never mentioned. He yeah. did that, and uh, children shouldn't play with dead things early mm-hmm. on, and we just don't remember them. But right. Death Dream's good, okay. And it's cool that they mention that in there because it's directly tied to the topic, right? Right. Uh, you know, we talk about Dawn of the Dead and how that's a. a, a on consumerism at the time that's going on, but then we start to turn the corner and talking about the rise of the religious right in this country and the the effect that that's going to have uh, on what the new slashers look like. And they do a wonderful Friday the 13th montage where the religious right is talking about how, you know, promiscuity is wrong and kids, you know, doing drugs and drinking is wrong and coming out and decrying that and then you cut the Friday the 13th and Jason is killing all these kids that the religious right is saying if you could do this you're going to die and so it's a really a fun play on the balance between and yet the two. religious right hated those two hated those two <laughs> yeah yeah seems hypocritical yeah just a little bit uh, then we get some stuff with um, 
like poltergeist and how the past comes back to haunt us, which is going to be you know a, a theme um, uh, in you know American cultures. We start looking about the the horrors and atrocities that we committed as a people in the past and how. We have to go back and re-examine those, and we're still doing that today. Woke warning. <laughs> <laughs> um, you uh, moved the stones, but you didn't move the bodies. bodies. There's a bigger, there's a bigger idea there. Yeah. I don't think it's necessarily the point of the movie, but when you really kind of look at it, yeah, I think it's there. Right. You enacted new equality laws, but you didn't teach people how to treat other people with decency and respect. You know what I mean? You did this marker, but you didn't do the work that was required right. to make and sure. I think that's uh, kind of a nuanced element of this documentary that's going to be kind of uncelebrated. Mm-hmm. They, they do a pretty good job of kind of throwing enough out there and assuming the viewer is intelligent enough to make their draw their own conclusions yeah. without making it an unpleasant lecture. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we start going back to focusing on normal people again, getting away from the sad, the, the supernatural, and we start talking about Henry, portrait of a serial killer, Seven, Misery, Scream, American Psycho, and that stuff is going to rule, you know, throughout the '90s, you know, and there's going to be a focus and an interest in that type of genre, um, almost kind of going back to you no, know, the, the monsters us, sure, <laughs> and it's I also think Hannibal Lecter. Helped yeah. fuel a lot of that. Yeah. Not necessarily Henry, because that was before. Yeah. But I think a lot of that was driven by the success of, of that particular movie. For sure. Kind of the psychology of, of the one person. And, you know, we got a decade of, of crime thrillers that were gory enough to be horror movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, then we hit uh, post 9 11. Uh, Things get a little murky here. Uh, they talk about how Romero tries to make Land of the Dead, and no one's really buying into it. Um, I, I think that gonna, movie once. I was going to say, I think, and I'm just being fair to the documentary here, I'm, I'm not slamming it, I think it suffers a little bit because now we're into territory that's too recent for proper reflection mm-hmm. which already i think looks a little bit different yeah. watching it now yeah. in the year that we're watching it in yeah um and that's not a knock against it it's just sometimes this is why you really shouldn't have hardcore opinions on history until there's been some time for it to maturate and yeah. so it's like we're talking about things at the time that aren't even 10 years old we don't really have a proper view of effect yeah, and like, full yeah. scope because they're it. like, yeah, Romero really just knocked it out of the park with Land of the Dead, and uh, we're <laughs> like, no, he didn't. <laughs> yeah, it's like compared to the next two, yeah, but <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> that's about all I've got. Um, sure, he brings up the mist and kind of bleak, bringing back bleak endings again. Yeah, I, I think nine eleven is is really the last viable topic to throw out, and I don't even think even then that you could really look at how it affected movies and viewership because, again, it's just too soon. Yeah. yeah. Um, There's newer documentaries that do a better job of that. Right. Talking about um, the what we would call the, the torture porn movies kind sure. of being in relation to what we're seeing, the images coming from like Abu Ghraib and, and Guantanamo Bay and some of the atrocities committed by, you know, those watching those prisoners. and Sure. Our, well, and our understanding of, of domestic... International, like internal, external, mm-hmm. uh, the fear of the unknown, the idea of traveling in a place where it's not home. I, I think it all directly ties into that, but I think it's also a little bit of a reach at yeah. the time when when this is being made to just right. directly attribute it to that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, overall, it's an excellent documentary. Like like midnight movies, it makes me want to watch a whole bunch of movies. Mm-hmm. I found I found that it kept throwing up clips. Of movies that I've seen a hundred times that made me go, mm, I wouldn't mind throwing that on yeah, right get now. Back to that one, <laughs> Vinny. Any final thoughts on Nightmares in Red, White, and Blue? No, no. I enjoy it though. Obviously, I've seen it three or four times now. It's my, always a good watch. I was going to say my only complaint is I wish that they showed more of the of real world events. Oh yeah, in documentary form to directly tie into film after. Yeah, I think that that would have made this like top. Of right. the line documentary, I think it's really good still. Yeah, but I think that that would have, I think if we would have spent just a little bit more time on on the real things, 
that would have helped. Yeah. But it's still really good. Yeah, it's definitely worth watching. Alright, for another round of Documentary Mash, I'm one of your hosts, Grizzly Abner, and I've been joined by... Professor Wagstaff. Been a misbinning. Good to see you. Good to be with you, friends. We invite you to go out there and to stay scary. In heaven, everything is fine. Ha, <laughs> ha,